All right, so one of the things that I hope that we've, get, that we've uh, taken note of as we've walked through the Sermon on the Mount um, is that context matters, right? As we've seen uh, more than one little phrase that you are familiar with and that is used even out in the, you know, amongst the, the world outside of the church, there's, there's phrases like judge not, like we looked at last week, um, and, then, and then today's, right? The, the golden rule is something that's familiar um, and is familiar and, and accepted and used by the world outside of its, its context. And, and so it, it matters so much as we study scripture, but I just want to just quickly note that it matters to you as well. Like it matters when you speak, if you tell me something and I take one sentence that you said and start propagating that as the quote, and it doesn't represent what you meant, you're going to be bothered by that, right? Like you're going you're gonna to say, well, well that, that's not what I meant, right? Like there's more context, more words that I said, the posture, maybe the tone, right? How many of y'all had a misunderstanding even through text because you can't imply tone and stuff? Like you thought somebody meant it a certain way or you don't understand how the you know, younger generation speaks to one another and you thought you were just saying K with an abbreviation and realized that, oh, that's offensive to just put the letter K there. I didn't know that, right? And so without body language, it can be misinterpreted. And so you don't want somebody to take something that you said and lift it out of context and say, say something and, and make it mean something that you didn't mean, right? So we don't want to do that to Jesus either, right? You would be offended. You would want to explain yourself. We don't want to do that to Jesus either. So we want to be careful about that. And so as we look at today's passage, it's the golden rule. And you might be like, well, Jordan, that's probably one that was okay if we lift it out of, out of context. Like, what's it going to hurt if we treat others how we want to be treated? Right? Like that seems actually that would be a good thing, right? If the world did that, even if they don't have Jesus, like it would be, it, it, you know, and that's not wrong. It wouldn't be a bad thing if we all just treated each other how we want to be treated. That's a lesson you're teaching littles, right? As they're learning how to interact with one another. Hey, you know, we don't want to, like, let, let's, not, let's not harm each other. You don't like when somebody hits you, right? Uh, you, would, you hope somebody will share with you, so you share with them, right? It, so it wouldn't be a bad thing if we take that out of context and, and just apply it, but it does matter because when we do that and it just becomes a moral kind of ethical teaching and principle to live by, we domesticate what Jesus actually meant. We neuter it. We, we take away the potency of what Jesus was actually saying when he said it. And that's why context matters so much. So let's look again. Uh, I think the title probably of the sermon probably should have been Redeeming the Golden Rule. Uh, because as we look at the, the context here, Jesus is saying um, so much more than just a, a good moral ethical principle. Um, and, and actually, it's not less than that, okay? So it's not some other meaning. Like, oh, am I not supposed to? Look? No, you are, but there's so much more to that. So let's look at what Jesus is saying here in verse uh, 12 of chapter 7. This is a transitional um, passage right here, 12 through 14, um, in the sermon. This is a sermon. It's important to remember this is being delivered orally by Jesus on a mount. Sermon on the Mount is is not actually in the scripture. It's just what we call it later. The, gold, the words golden rule are actually not in there either. Jesus doesn't say that. It's just something we labeled it later. But it's important to remember this is being delivered as an oral uh, sermon that Jesus is giving on a mount. He's got his disciples are, si are seated near him and he's speaking directly to them, but with uh, a, a large number of people, a crowd out beyond them that can actually hear. And so he's speaking to them but with, with the crowds in mind. And so as he's moving um, out of kind of the real bulk and content of his passage and really moving towards some conclusionary statements where he's going to really call us to act and respond to what we've heard, there's this sort of hinge passage 
if you will. And so we see that it's not just the golden rule because right before that he says, so, right? And so that word is, is a transition just like therefore or something. So is saying, hey, what he's about to say is, is based upon what he's been saying, right? The, the, the word so there connects it back to what he's previously been teaching. He's saying, because of these things, now do this. So what, what has he been saying? Now, uh, listen, in reality, this is, this is potentially going all the way back uh, in, in the whole sermon is, is sort of in view. As I said, this is kind of a, 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 a move toward the conclusion, if you will. Um, and so really, the, the whole sermon is, is in view as he's been delivering this and, and saying that. But then even more specifically, maybe you see the, the, the previous verses right before that uh, are, the, are the verses that we looked at briefly when we talked about prayer. And I mentioned then that we would kind of circle back and, and give a little bit more um, explanation to these whenever we were in its context. Because if you're, if you're just trying to kind of make sense of that 7 through 11, uh, in fact, there's, there's some debate even among commentators about like, it feels like Jesus is just kind of throwing in, like, a few last-minute things he, he wanted to say, because he's talking about judging people, and then he goes on to prayer, and then he comes back to the golden rule, and it's, and it's like, what, are these connected? Is this a flow of thought, or are these sort of, you know, bullet point nuggets that he's just kind of throwing out there? And, and I would submit that Jesus is always intentional in his, in his communication, in his conversation, so I think it is, and it is connected. Okay, so the, pre, the, the immediate context, he's just said, hey, Pray, pray with persistence, ask, seek, knock, and you'll be heard because we have a good father, right? We have a good father and, and, and he'll give you good things. That's, that's the, the, the immediate context right before that. But then even, you know, roll that up just a little bit more and it's the passage that we looked at last week about judging. And so Jesus is talking here about how we should interact with people. The, the, the context prior to that has been all about us having a good father, because we have a good father, don't judge one another. Because our father has treated us with mercy, we're going to treat others with mercy, and, and, and we're not going to judge, right? Uh, and so that's the, that's the immediate context. And, and then he's going to say, you know, in just a minute, treat others how you want to be treated. And in reality, what, what's going on with that, pra- that passage about prayer is Jesus is calling us to a really, really challenging and really hard way of living. That the, that the, the law, the, the ethics that he is giving here of the kingdom, the Sermon on the Mount, is, is a wonderful, high calling that would transform the world. We're going to look at that in a minute. If we actually live this out, it would transform the world. If, if Jesus' people lived out the teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount, it would not theoretically, but actually transform the world. But it's such a high calling that it's actually impossible for us to do in our flesh. Like, we cannot do it. We can't execute it. So Jesus is saying, you're going to, if you're actually trying to live this out, you're going to come to a point where you're, you're going to cry out in prayer. You're going to be asking him for help, right? And this is where it comes back to, you know, Peter talking about, hey, we've been given everything we need to, for life and godliness. He won't withhold anything for us, from us. And, and we, again, we take that out of context and we, we, we go to name it, claim it theology where we just pray it and pray it in Jesus' name and he's entitled to give it. But in context, what he's saying here is when you're living a life of godliness, when you're, when you're following Jesus and things get hard when it comes to loving people or killing your own sin and, and pursuing holiness, that, that's when you're driven to your knees and you pray and you say, Lord, will you help me? Will you give me what I need? And he's saying, absolutely, always. 
Always I will give you what you need. So, so that's the context for that prayer. And so all of that is, is what leads into, this, that's what the so is referring to when Jesus says, so now whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. So he's saying, because you've been treated by God, who is 100% the judge and will judge us, has judged us, in fact, and found us wanting, found us lacking, found us as sinful people deserving of hell. But because instead of treating us as we deserved, he treats us as a merciful father, a good father. Because we're treated with such mercy and goodness and grace because of that. Now go and treat others the way that you want to be treated the way that you would, all, would wish others would treat you, do that to them. For this is the law and the prophets. This is kingdom living. Okay, We made this connection early on in the Sermon on the Mount. We haven't referenced it recently. But it's so, like, it's so beautiful to connect the whole Bible and to remember that Matthew is being written to Jews. Jewish people have been awaiting the Messiah for generations. Right? And, and they had been living out their life based on the Old Testament law you know, given to them by Moses. And, and this is how they lived their life. Right? And they're, they're familiar with these rhythms. And Matthew's writing saying, okay, all of that was leading us to this. All the things in the Old Testament, the Moses and the Abraham and the David, they were all leading us to Jesus. All the prophets, they were all leading us to Jesus. And, and we looked at early on in chapter 5 that Jesus says, hey, I've not come to get rid of the law. We're not starting over. I'm here to fulfill it all. Everything that God's been doing in the Old Testament finds its yes and its amen and its fulfillment in Jesus. So what Jesus is here to do is not to wad up and throw away this whole idea with the Jewish people, but rather to be the fulfillment of what the Jewish people have been doing and looking forward to and, and praying for and going through rituals to practice for finds its fulfillment right there in Jesus. And so it, it's beautiful. If you, if you look at it, you remember that G, Matthew's writing a particular, to a particular audience. That's why if you, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you're new to Christianity and start reading in the New Testament, which is a good thing to do, you'll be like, man, these are some of the same stories, right? You get a little confused. You're like, well, this is repeating. And it's four different authors writing uh, the same story from four different perspectives and to four different audiences, right? So who they're writing to informs what they're saying. So Matthew's talking to these Jews who are familiar with the work of God throughout history. And he's saying to them, this is the kingdom. And they would, they would connect that back to when Moses brought the people, when God through Moses brought the people out of Egypt in the story of the Exodus and gave them the law. Right? So remember the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, is sandwiched between these, de these proclamations that the kingdom is here. Okay, the, the end of chapter 4 ends that way. The, chapter 8 you know, fires that back up. It's this, this proclamation, or actually chapter 9, 8 has some you know, more power and proof that, that Jesus has the authority to be the one who brings the kingdom. But then it, it's sandwiched here saying, this is what the kingdom is like. And so as he's delivering this, he's delivering this to a people who uh, these are, these are the, the people that have been brought out of darkness, right? As we, we, we talk about at Christmas, this child, right? The people who walked in a great darkness have seen a great light, right? From Isaiah, we, we celebrate that at Christmas. We, Jesus is saying, this is here. This is the moment. And Matthew is putting it together in such a way to say, this is the new law. So Jesus is speaking much like God did to his people in 
the book of Exodus, when he brought them out of Egypt, out of their slavery, out of their suffering, and into a new life, he gave them the law and said, this is how we're going to live now. You're my people. I've ransomed you through my power, through the power of my outstretched hand. I bought your salvation. Okay? So God doesn't pick us based on our performance. He doesn't pick us based on our moral record and draft us into his army based on whether we're good or not. No, he does the work of salvation through his outstretched arm. He says, because I've brought you out, now you're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God. And this is how we as a people are going to live. He says, I'm making you a nation. You were just slaves in Egypt, but I'm going to make you into a nation, into a people with an identity, with, with a purpose and with a king. And this is the king's edicts. This is the king's law. So Jesus is now saying, hey, I'm here as the greater Moses. I'm going to rescue my people out of their actual slavery. You know, Pharaoh was the one thing, but our sin and Satan and the power that he has on the world is a totally uh, next level thing. And Jesus says, I'm here to rescue you from that. And you're going to be my people. And we're going to make you a people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood of people who have a name. We're all under the name of Jesus, all given the blood of Jesus uh, to make us his by name, and this is how we are to act. Okay, so so this is what he's giving. Like th- this is the context here. He's saying, okay, this is this is what this is how I want my people to live. Okay, and and so he's connecting it back to what he said, and then he goes on to say, when you do this, when when you live in such a way that what whatever you wish others would do to you, you you do it for them. You actually live that way. He says, this is the law and the prophets. What does he mean by that? Well, I think there's a lot of layers to what he means by that. Basically, he's saying, hey, the the rest of what has been written in the Old Testament can really be summed up in this command. We see this explicitly. Another time that Jesus makes the similar point is when he's asked, what's the most important commandment? And Jesus says, well, love your neighbor as your, or love love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But he, he follows it up. He says, but the second's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you do this, you fulfill the rest of the law. Okay, so what does he mean by that? And, and so the, the first part of loving Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is sort of taught and implied through the rest of the sermon. It's not explicitly said here, but it's still crucial and important. And, and, and here he's focusing in on the second, which is like it, Jesus says, when you love your neighbor as yourself. And when you do that, he says it, it fulfills, this is, the, this is the law and the prophets. What, what's he saying about that? It, it, this is, he's saying when you, live this way, you won't break the other commands. Like, instead of having to memorize all of the commandments, even the 10, not to mention the other, you know, the 600 plus that were written after that, instead of having to memorize all that, you can boil it down. When you want to know how to act, how to live, how to treat people, just boil it down to this. Hey, how would you want to be treated? If you do that, you won't break the commandments. Hey, let's just look really quick. Exodus 20. Here's, here's the commandments that come. So, the first four are about our relationship with God, which is why Jesus says the first most important commandment is that we love God with our heart, all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. When we do that, we won't have other gods. We won't make graven images. We'll keep the Sabbath holy. Like, we will love God with all that we got. We won't break the first four commandments. The last six, uh, so those first four are vertical, right? When we love God with all that we got, we won't break those. The, the last six are horizontal, how we treat each other. And, and Jesus is simply saying, if you love each other, you won't break these last six. What are the last six? Well, he says, first of all, honor your father and mother, right? Uh, if, if you love your father and mother, you're going to obey them. Why? Because if you're a father and a mother, you want your kids to obey you, right? 
Moms, dads, yeah, <laughs> you want your kids to obey you, right? So, so if you're going to love your mom and dad as your neighbor, you love them as yourself even, you'll obey them, right? Um, you shall not murder. Well, that one's pretty obvious, right? You, you love each other, right? You're not going to kill each other, okay? Um, you, you should not commit adultery, right? You, you love each other. You treat each other like you want to be treated. You're not going to sleep with each other's spouses, okay? Um, you're not going to steal from each other. That's the next commandment. You shall not steal. That makes sense, right? You love each other. You're not going to take what's not yours that belongs to somebody else. Uh, you're not going to bear false witness. You're not going to lie. You're not going to give false testimony. You're not going to bear false witness about somebody else. Why? Because you don't want that done to you, Right? You don't want somebody to lie about you. You don't want somebody to defame your reputation. You don't want somebody to give false witness about you. There's consequences when that happens. You don't want that, so don't do that to somebody else. Okay? It, it makes sense. It's actually logical. It's just Jesus' brilliant way of teaching. He goes on to say, don't covet each other's stuff. That includes spouses. That includes you know, animals, tools, homes, land. Right? Translate that to us. Right? It, it's, it, don't, don't covet somebody else's car, somebody else's you know, job, somebody else's, you know, really nice home, and all, all these things, you know, spouse, I wish mine, like, no, he says, don't do that, and, and, and that makes sense, because if you love each other, you don't, you don't treat each other that way. So what's Jesus doing here? He, he's saying, listen, I, I know you love yourself. That's a natural inclination and tendency from us as humans. We love ourselves. Paul leverages this in Ephesians 5 when he talks about marriage. He says, husbands, treat your wives in such a way that you, you, you take care of them the way that you take care of your own body. What does that mean? When you got urges, when you got, when you got things that you want done, whenever you're, you're hungry, you, 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 you take care of that. Like he's saying, I want you to have the same kind of ferocity about caring for your spouse as you do caring, meeting your own needs. And so Jesus knows that we, we care about our own needs. We, we care about ourselves. So he's taking that thing which is broken and flawed, which is at the root of so many sin, and he's flipping it and saying, this is actually where the power lies to love each other, is love each other the way that you wish you were loved. So all the rest of the Bible, okay? So up to that point, it's the story, it's narrative, Genesis, and then get into Exodus, and then after he gets them out of Egypt, gets them in the, in the wilderness, he starts to give them these laws and ways to live by. And from there, we, we see the story is them failing to live by them and God calling them back out, failing to live by them, and God calling them back out, God showing mercy, them showing rebellion, God showing mercy, them showing rebellion, over and over again. And that's the rest of your Old Testament in a, in a gross summation, is this rhythm. And so Jesus is saying, listen, if, if, you, if you'll just love each other, you'll take care of everything else that's split, that, that's, that, that ink was spilled, that, that words were used to talk about through the Old Testament. It's that simple. If you would do that, you, you, this will be the kingdom coming to life. This will be visibility for the world to see. The city set on a hill, like the, 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 the thing where, where God says, I'm going to make you a people, and the whole world's going to notice how we live. Like, this is what he's saying. When, we, when you do this, all of the rest of the Old Testament will be taken care of simply by doing this. And, and, and here's the reality. It's not just about Jesus' law. Like, this is what all our other legislation is getting at, just civilly, right? Our civil laws is actually just trying to get people to treat each other like humans. 
right? Stop devaluing each other. Stop taking from each other. Stop harming each other. Stop turning guns on each other. Stop, you know, bashing each other. Stop. Like that's the, the civil law is all an attempt to get us to live this way. It's flawed and it has wrong motives and it gets messy, but that's, that's the whole idea, right? Like even you break it all the way down to speeding because you're like, well, there's a lot of laws that I mean, I don't think they really going to hurt anybody. You think about down to speeding, like how many of us are guilty of speeding and we think it's no big deal in the moment, right? Why? Because we know we have somewhere to be. Like we know our motives and we don't intend to hurt anybody, right? My kids, all the time, they want to eat like on the couch or in our bed. And we're like, no, 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 you eat at the table. So we'll see them like carrying like a Nutella, wa- like a waffle, they smeared Nutella on, they're like going to our bed. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. They're like, well, I'm not going to spill it. Well, I know you don't mean to, right? Like I know you don't have a plan to smear that Nutella on my comforter, but this house is chaos and someone else is going to jump on you or a dog or something like, and it's going to get spilled. Like there's an accident. And so we don't intend to hurt people. So when we're speeding, like we know we're not trying to hurt anybody. So we don't think it's a big deal. How many of you guys have gotten angry at somebody who's sped by you? Like they go by your house, like vroom, and you're like throwing your arms up, like, well, come on, like they can hear you. Is that just me? Am I the only one that acts like that? Or you're on the road and they're like vroom, and you're judging them, right? You're just calling them out. But see, when it's us, we know our motives, we don't, you know, but why do we, why do we care then? Why do we care when somebody speeds by us? Why get I got kids that live here, near this road. My, my, like, I have to pull out on this road. I, I'm on this road. You just blew by me. Like, my family's on this road, right? So, so we're saying, hey, don't, like, don't act like an idiot. There's other people. Like, that's what we're saying. We're just mad that they're speeding. But in reality, we're saying, hey, care about somebody else, jerk, right? When they're speeding like that. So even a law to, to not drive recklessly is actually just trying to get humans to treat humans like humans. Trying to get humans to care for each other. All right, so imperfectly so, yes, but that's, that's the heart behind this. So th- this, is, this is really Jesus getting down to like basics of, of human behavior and saying, this is, this is what we're getting at, and, and this, is, this is why we're calling you to this. It's, it's a right impulse for, for the government to make those rules and to do those things. Why? Because that's how God made us in the first place. We're supposed to live that way. I want you to think of the impact that would happen if we actually lived out the golden rule. Or, in another way, we fulfill the, the law and prophet. Like, what he's saying here is when you, when you live this way, the, the, the kingdom begins to come to life to the world. It gets, it, it gets put on display. Okay, people start to see that's how we live, and, and they start to, to, to make, like, make note of it, right? I want you to dream with me for a minute. Like, what difference would that make? I, I, let's just start here in the church. Like, if we, inside of this church, the journey, if we loved each other like that, what do you mean like that? Well, how do you want to be loved? And, and that's interesting. Real quick, like, there's different forms and, and like, really, the derivatives of this law that, Talk about the negative, right? Even in other religions, I think um, in um, Confucianism and Hinduism and Buddhism all have like uh, a similar saying, but it's actually different because it's just prohibiting the negative. It'll say something like this. Confucianism says, do not do to others what you do not want them to do to you. Hinduism says, this is the sum of duty. Uh, Do not do to others what would cause pain if done to you. Buddhism, hurt not others in ways that you yourself would find hurtful. 
Okay, some would call those the, the, like the silver law. It's not all that helpful, but it, it, it shows that it's actually a less than. Because in that, and even in the laws that we talked about civilly, all that's really happening is, is the restraining of evil, the restraining of harm. You see what I'm saying? Like when that's all this, it's don't do what you don't want done to you. It's just a negative. It's just, it's just really meaning it's this, it's, it's a passive, okay, I mean, I, there's no positive like making me do something. It's just, okay, don't, don't harm someone that way. That's not what Jesus says, is it? Jesus says, whatever you wish, verse 12, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. That's totally, that's radically different. Why? Because it's not just prohibiting the negative. It's actually compelling, propelling us toward a positive, taking action, thinking about, okay, if I were this person, what would I wish somebody would do for me? So when we go back to the church. Like, what would happen if we treated each other like this? What? I want you to be honest and think about some ways that you have wished the church would treat you or wish that people in the church would treat you. I can't tell you how often I've had conversations with people who um, or offended by our church or another church, and, or maybe they ended up at our church because they were offended by, because they said that, you know, the church was clicky or it was hard to penetrate. And they say things that are very practical, like, well, it seemed like everybody else had a plan after lunch, but nobody invited us to go anywhere. Right? Like, it's real simple things. Like, you wish somebody would do this for you. Or you wish they wouldn't talk about you. They wish you wish they would talk to you. They wish that you, they would ask you how you're doing and actually listen, right? And you get frustrated when you see that happening to, to other people and they're not doing it for you. Like, you see what I mean? Like, you start to, it's really simple, practical things. We just to theorize this and go, yeah, it would be really good if we loved each other the way that we wanted to be loved. I want you to push it down into the messiness of your life and think about, hey, what do I wish people would do for me? And, and that, stop and think there for just a minute. So think about it from a church standpoint. I gave a couple examples. I don't know what it is for you. What Jesus is saying, he's not saying it doesn't matter that you have felt that way. Okay? He actually cares that you have felt left out and isolated and lonely. He does. But what he's saying is, hey, I see you. I've purchased you. You belong to me. You don't get your value horizontally. You get your value vertically from me. So, yeah, it's not right how they treated you, but you know what we should do? Treat them the way you want to be treated. So what do you do now? You, you stop thinking you don't matter, and instead, you lift up your head, and you go invite somebody to lunch. Right? But you see how, like, that's simple, but so many relationships get destroyed because that's where we stay. Right? Do that, and we'll start transforming this church. Like, we'll start, like, if you just think about, like, what do you wish people would do for you? If you, you're going through something hard and they didn't reach out to you, well, are you doing that to other people? Are you reaching out to them, right? And, and Satan is so good at convincing you that you're alone and that you don't matter. And so then you see everything through that lens, don't you? You start to interpret everybody's actions through that lens. Jesus is saying, no, no, you interpret your value through my lens. I've called you son and daughter. I've given you your name. Now go love each other. No, no, no more caveats. No, well, they didn't, no, no, just love each other. Like, do it. What you want people to do for you, do it for them. It's, it's, it's radical. It's revolutionary. And it, and it is powerful if we do it. We believe the best out of each other. We don't judge each other. It's, it's, 
as actual. This is not just like, oh yeah, that'd be really nice. No, this is like, like this is low-hanging fruit. We could do this, and it would change. It would change our church, and it would start to get out. We'll get to that in just a minute. Think about your marriages. How many thoughts do you have about what you wish your spouse would do? You just mumble under your breath. They always do that, right? They don't even care. I've worked all day and, you know, whatever, right? You see the implication? Do it for them. Love them. Think about what, don't just think about what you want and why they're not doing it. Think about what you, what, what you would want in their shoes and do it for them. Men, pro tip, still working on it myself. They don't want you to fix it. They just want you to listen, okay? That's, that, that one's going to get lost in translation because you're like, I don't know what they want. They want you to listen. That's it, full stop, just listen. You're like, yeah, yeah, but no, just, that's it. Just listen, validate. I'm still working on it. It's really hard. I'm like, anyway, that's, that's a whole other deal. But like, seriously, think about what you want from your spouse and then give it to them. Like, turn it around. Like, that's the whole deal. Like your families, your kids, your brothers, your sisters, your mom, your dad, like so many of you have estranged relationships with your family, with your mom and dad, or with your brother, sister, because you're like, well, they don't ever call me, or I went through this, and they didn't even reach out, okay? Listen, you have power to do it, like to extend it to yourself. It becomes revolutionary. I want you to dream with me for a minute. What would it look like if the world saw us love each other like that? This is what Jesus is talking about. He says, you're going to be a salt and light, and, 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 and the city set on a hill. The world's going to notice, right? They see how we love each other. What a witness that is, right? Like the, the world should be in awe of how the church lives as we follow Jesus. People should be talking. They should be wanting us to be in charge of things, right? Like they, they see, man, the way they operate, like they don't backbite. They don't take each other down. They don't, they don't sleep with each other's spouses. They, 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 they reach out. They care for each other. They, they seem to really love each other. They should be noticing that. The way that. Here's what I think. The way that we notice how efficient Chick-fil-A is at operating their drive through how many of you have said or heard said, man, Chick-fil-A needs to be in charge of the government, right? Because they can handle it, right? Efficiency, like they get it done. It's awesome. I'd vote for them. I don't even know who them is. Local manager of a Chick-fil-A. I put them in office right now. Like, the world should be noticing that sort of stuff about the church. They should be seeing how we operate, how we love each other. And they should start to say, hey, we need to learn from them. We need to, them to influence more stuff. They're doing it well. But there's a problem, isn't there? Because as I said, we've been trying to do this. We've been trying to legislate this since the beginning of time. We all know the golden rule. It's not a matter of information. So why don't we do it? It'd be awesome, right? But why don't we do it? We don't because we can't. Can't. We're, we're actually not capable. We are selfish, inwardly turned people by our sin nature. And, and without a heart change, we can't actually live this out. Like, and that's the point of the next couple of verses and why they matter is because Jesus is going to say, like, listen, you can't just decide to do this. You can't just decide to, to live well. There's, there's a gospel impact. This is why we have to redeem the golden rule and know that, that it, it is all about Jesus, and then it starts with a so, which is referring back, and then it goes to say, this is how, you know, when you do this, it'll actually, you know, fulfill the law and prophets. This is all about God's design and God's plan, and we can't live any of these things out if we don't have a radical heart change. 
How does that happen? It's through Jesus. Right? Like that's the new kingdom. When I talk about Jesus is the new and greater Moses, he's not just going to try again and see if he can get the ball, the ball further down the field than Moses, right? It's not like God tried with the Jews and, man, things went well and there were some good intentions, but they just, they just didn't make it. So he's going to, you know, give the ball to Jesus, see if he can get a little further down the field. No, no, Jesus has a totally, like, he's got a totally transformative plan, and that is to land himself on the cross after living a perfect life that you and I could not live. He dies the death that we should have died. And in that grave, he lays where we belonged, where we should have laid. And when he burst back out of that, what we're about to celebrate at Easter, he's blowing the doors open, like blowing a hole in the wall that separated us from God, that kept us from living this out. And he, he says, I'm going to empower these people. I'm not just going to say they should. I'm going to empower these people to do it. This is what the prophets have been talking about, saying there'll, there'll come a day whenever God's going to take out our hearts of stone and put in heart of flesh. He's going to, he's going to give us an update so much so he's going to take out the old heart, which is just selfishly, inwardly turned and unable to carry out God's design. And he's going to take that out and put in a heart of flesh. And with that heart of flesh, he's going to indwell us with the Holy Spirit. And now from the inside out, we have a compulsion to live and to live out God's design. It's not just an external pressure of these rules that I need to keep and I should and I should try harder. It, that's, that's the law. The law was outside it, com compelling us and putting pressure on us to live a certain way. And it can't change us. We cannot live it out. That's the problem in society. More rules, more laws, better leaders. It ain't going to fix the fundamental issue of humanity. The fundamental issue of humanity is a sinful heart. And Jesus alone fixes that. Jesus alone fixes that. When we trust him, when we turn to him, say, man, I'm a sinner, Lord. I'm hopeless without a savior. And Jesus, I believe that you are that savior. That is the pivotal turning point moment that you can experience salvation. If you haven't done that, that's it. That's the invitation. That's the whole point. Trust Jesus. He gives you a new heart and he empowers us then to live. Okay? And that's what he's saying. When it follows up, live this way. You do it, it'll fulfill the whole law and prophets. But he goes on to say, enter by the narrow gate. What's he talking about? For the gate is wide. I'm in verse 13. And the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. What's he talking about? He's saying, listen, the world is on its way to destruction. Everybody's moving in the same direction even though they may have different, like they think they have different destinations. So the universalists who say, you know, all, don't all roads lead to the same place? They got it right a little bit. Yeah, all roads lead to the same place, and it's to hell. What are you talking about? Yeah, all roads, you know, your religion, my religion, this way of life, you know, as long as you're trying to do good, aren't we all going to end up in the same place? Yeah, hell. So Jordan, that's kind of harsh. Well, it's, it's, the, it's the Bible. It's my job to tell you what this says, not what you want to hear. Okay, and, and yeah, all roads except for Jesus lead to hell. Like that's where humanity left to its own devices is, is, is on their way to hell. You say, well, I know some good people. Yeah, but it, it, they may be good to the world standard and that's our problem. We compare ourselves down line, right? We compare ourselves to somebody who we know is morally worse than us. Well, at least I'm not this guy. I've got a pretty good chance, right? Jesus is saying, no, no, you don't compare yourself down line to the worst part. You compare yourself to me and my standard and if you have failed to meet it and you have, 
then you're damned and on your way to hell. And Jesus said, that, that road's full. Like everybody's just moving that way by default. They might be worshiping this God or doing this thing or trying this diet plan, trying this way a lot. They might be meditating 50 minutes a day and taking cold showers and all of the things that you know, the you know, self-help people tell you to do. It doesn't matter. They're on their way to hell. Jesus says, don't follow them. Don't go with them. I've just laid out a kingdom way of living, but it will require that you go through a narrow gate. It will require that you give up your life so that you can find it. Okay, he says that those who enter in it, like, are, there's a few of them, but it's hard and it's narrow, but it leads to life. This idea of a narrow passage, I want you to think about this. I'm borrowing this from a buddy of mine as he preached on this. He, uh, he talked about there was this, uh, this group of men in the Vietnam War called Tunnel Rats. And, and uh, the Viet Cong had like an underground tunnel system and, and, and ways of like, you know, transporting or whatever. And it, it became like mission critical that we can kind of get access to this. So there was a few select group of guys that smaller framed, right? That they, it, because they had to get in. If you've ever like gone to, you know, different places around here and hiked and you had to like shimmy between a rock, like they had to, they had to shimmy in a small opening to get into these tunnels. And so guess what they could take? A flashlight and a single 1911 pistol. And they'd go into these tunnels and on this mission. They had to leave everything else behind. Because they couldn't take it. You can't, can't carry a backpack. You can't take Like, that's all they could take. Jesus, when he calls us to come, he, he calls us to come and lay everything else down. Like, I've said this before. It's not like you got all these things you're trying to get life out of, right? It's like me trying to carry in groceries. Like, it was a YouTuber mocked it, said dads make it like an Olympic sport to see if we can get it all in one trip, right? We've got things like on every finger and every, you know, just try to carry it all in at once. It's like we come to life trying to get stuff. Like we got all these things we're trying and we're like, oh yeah, yeah, I should get the gospel too. Like, like, like just, just slide that one on my finger here, right? I've got room. Just, just add it to what I'm carrying, right? And then we try to go on about, Jesus says, no, no, you got to lay it all down. Set it all down. I know you think you need it. Set it all down. Lay it all down. And what do you pick up? The gospel. This is the, the, the parables of, hey, there's, there's a guy who's, who's looking and he finds this treasure in a field and he goes back and he sells everything that he's got so he can get that treasure, that pearl, that, that thing. Why? Because the, the gospel's so rich that it's worth giving everything else. Jesus says, you want to you find your life? You've got to lay it down. Those who lose their life for my sake in the gospel, it doesn't end there. Find it. Like, we just focus on the negative. Yeah, I know, church... I know I should do more. I know I should try to follow Jesus, but like, I don't know if I'm ready to give up this or that. But, but the good news of the gospel is that when you give up this or that, whatever it is, you find life. Like that's the, that's the invitation from Jesus. He says, listen, enter by the narrow gate. This is verse 13. For the gate is wide and it's easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many, lots of people on that path. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard it leads to life, and those who find it are few. But it leads to life. You've got to keep that in mind. Like, that's the deal. I, I, want, to, I want to close with uh, an illustration from the Bible itself. There's a guy named Asaph who writes the 73rd Psalm. If you want to turn there with me, you can. Psalm 73. And Asaph, like a lot of us, is, is kind of looking around and going, man, I'm trying to follow Jesus, and it feels like I'm getting hit at every turn. Anybody ever been like that? 
Like I'm getting knocked down. Like I, I can't, I can't seem to save any money. I can't seem to get, catch a break with my kids and my family and my job and my spouse, whatever. And he's kind of feeling all that. And he starts looking around and going, man, all these other people, they're not even trying to follow Jesus and they seem to be doing great. You ever felt like that? Man, I'm trying, I'm busting my butt, I'm, I'm giving up these things, I'm giving up my Sunday morning, I'm giving up some money, I'm giving up, like, and, and it doesn't seem to be working for me. And I look around, these people don't seem to care. And God seems to be blessing and prospering them. This is what, that's what Asaph's going through, right? So you can read the whole psalm later, I would encourage you to do so. That's my summary, I want to read just a, a couple verses from it. But it starts out like this, saying, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. So he's being honest. He said, I almost bailed. Like, I, it almost took me out. My, my feet almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. He's in a, he, he says, I had a crisis of faith. Okay? For, why? For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He said, when I looked out and saw the world operating that way and seeming to flourish, it almost got me. It almost got me. Verse 4, he says, For they have no pangs until death. <laughs> their bodies are fat and sleek. It's just, it's, they're fat and happy. It's going well for them. They're not worried about eternity. They're just living their life. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. I would encourage you to read all that. Let's skip to verse 16. He says, But when I thought about how to understand this, he says, when I try to figure this out, he's got his faith. He knows it can't be true, but he's really struggling. He says, it, it seemed like a wearisome task. He's like, I don't think I can understand this. He, again, he's in crisis of faith. He's saying, I, I don't know. I don't know how to make sense of this. Lord, you said you're good. You said you won't withhold any good thing. He's looking at Matthew 7, 7 through 11, saying, God, you told me to ask, and you'd give it to me. You told me you're a good father, and, and I've asked, and, and you told me you wouldn't give me a, a, a rock when I asked for a fish, but this kind of feels like a rock. Can you relate? That's where Asaph is. And he's saying, I'm struggling to make sense of this. Until, verse 17, until I went in to the sanctuary of God. What's he saying? When he was looking and trying to evaluate life by looking at other people. Horizontally, if you will. He's looking out and saying, man, how do I get life out of this? He's getting nowhere. But then he lifts his head and he looks at God. Another way to say that, he opens his Bible. He begins to pray. He comes and talks to a pastor. He begins to get this into the light, right? Get out of your own head where it's just, there, there seems to be no way forward. He says, until I enter the sanctuary of God. And then, what? And then I discerned their end. What's he talking about? He says, then I remembered, oh yeah. The way is easy and the gate is wide that leads to destruction. It doesn't seem like that road's hard right now. But in the end, it leads to destruction. But God has called Asaph, and he's called us, to enter in the gate that's narrow and follow on the straight and narrow way. And that's going to be not easy, but hard. It's not popular, but it's good. It's not 
prosperous the way that we would hope for it to be prosperous, but it actually does lead us to life. And the only way to persevere into that is to remember that this is life is temporary. That what we really need to be worried about is eternity. And yeah, those people are fat and happy and sleek and good now, but they're headed to hell. But we have Jesus, and we know we're headed to heaven. We just sing about it. So that allows us to persevere in the moment. And that's the kind of love that was shown us. And again, it's the whole context here. Blessed are merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Why? Those of us who have received mercy, when we realize, oh, we deserve hell, just like everybody on the wide path. But he's, been, he's instead given us Salvation in Jesus, he's given us heaven. Now that transforms not only our heart toward life and toward God, but it transforms our heart toward others, right? We start to see others differently. We start to see them not as somebody who I need to compete with or get something out of, but rather as a fellow sinner, a fellow beggar who's looking for bread, right? And then we go, oh my goodness, I don't have to judge them. I don't have to be mad at them. I don't have to compete with them. I don't have to get something out of them. I don't have to manipulate them. I don't have to be better than them. I can go and show them where they could find bread, how I found bread. And his name is Jesus. He's the bread of life. So that empowers us to love with reckless abandon. Why? Because we've got what we need. We've got our good father in heaven. So now go love each other the way you wish to be loved. It'll transform the world. It's exciting to think about. Can't do it on our own, though. Can't do it on our own. This takes the people who are continually bringing ourselves under the cross and repenting of our sins and laying our pride down and asking Jesus to make us more like him. As we do that, we grow in his likeness. It's slow and it's hard sometimes. First, Second Corinthians 3 says it's one degree of glory to another. A man is worth pursuing. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. There's power in it, man. It could be a city set on a hill. We could be a, a, a place of hope here at the journey. And pray that revival would break out beyond the journey, that, that the kingdom, that the good news of Jesus Christ is the only way to life would go out to as many who would hear. Because everybody else is on the wide path. They're headed to hell. But Jesus says, any who would call upon my name, be saved and enter the narrow way and receive life. Let's pray. God, help us. We, uh, we need it. We always need it. Help us first to be acutely aware of how badly we need it. So send your spirit to just convict us of how badly we need you in your presence. And then secondly, Lord, would you, uh, by your grace, just go further to reveal to us just how rich your mercy and grace have been to us. As we sing, Lord, may we be overwhelmed by the way that you've treated us. And before we start thinking about how we should try to treat others better, that we just bask in the truth of how you've treated us. And that that will then fuel us to treat others different. Help the gospel to be central in our hearts. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.